Sorry. Tell me a joke. Um, knock, knock. Who's <laughs> there? The interrupting cow. The interrupting cow. Moo! <laughs> Who told you that one? Oh, I don't even know. That's old. <laughs> That's my go-to right there. It's your go-to. That's old school. That's old school. <laughs> yeah. Moo! <laughs> you got it. I got it. It could be the interrupting cow. Just like your phone. Your phone is interrupting. <laughs> it's, it's the interrupting cow, basically. It totally is. You're purring. So, Frankness, let's start this. Okay. Welcome back to Adventures in Humaning. I'm Frank. (laughs) I'm Meredith. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm doing great today. No no pull-up count today. I haven't done that. No pull-up count? No pull-up count today. Slacker. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, don't have a pull-up count either. (laughs) (laughs) Although I got a pretty decent number of pull-ups over the weekend. That was... I I, I witnessed that. Yeah. I witnessed that. Frank doing his humaning on a... Ferris wheel? Yeah. <laughs> I human the shit out of that Ferris wheel. <laughs> that was yeah. good. Good that stuff. Was good stuff. I don't know. I was I was in the zone. Yeah. Busted out a bunch. Oh. You know, they weren't slow and controlled, but uh they weren't fast and sloppy. No. Yet again, no uh photographic evidence, no video evidence. No, you're just gonna have to take my word. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So what uh, what do we have going on today? What is this wonderful episode going to be about? I think we're going to talk about, well, I know we're going to talk about um, a topic that um, we, we can certainly meander on for a long time, <laughs> and we will, but... Um, as we do. As we do. But, so, in today's world, everybody has, um, there's so many different dietary approaches, and some people would uh, hundreds, hun- yeah. yeah, hundreds. And some people really buy into their particular approach. Mm-hmm. Um, something would someone would call it dietary dogma, right? They run a, they buy into their approach, and they they are really passionate around it, and kind of preach it to other people as the way it has to be. And um, I guess you can argue two ends of the spectrum with respect to that. And one would be that, um, yeah, there probably is a human diet. And the other would be, but there are so many right ways (laughs) to uh, construct a human diet. Um, And the term that we're going to throw around today is called bio-individuality. And it was coined by... 
Joshua Rosenthal of Institute for Integrative Nutrition, which is um, a school that both you and I um, graduated from. Yes, indeed. And um, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful term. That's one of the reasons uh, that IAN attracted me and resonated with me was because of. Uh, that that sort of all-encompassing philosophy, uh, you know, the ability to, to to look beyond, you know, the simple short-sighted dogma of just thousands of of diets, and and to look beyond that, um, while at the same time incorporating them. Uh, right. I, I thought that was that was kind of a brilliant way to do that. Yep, and um, I guess we can just jump right into it. I, mean, I think, I think the conversation yeah. needs to begin with, what the hell is it? <laughs> what is yeah. what is bio individuality? So, come get lost with us in this conversation about bio individuality. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. I think as Joshua Rosenthal um, originally defined it, it's uh, there's no one-size-fits-all diet is kind of the, yeah. the gist of bio-individuality. Um, would you add anything to that? Uh, I, hell yeah, I'll add that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a concept that I think a lot of people are coming to, um, especially recently. It's It, it just, it makes... It makes a lot of sense, and you hear that parroted all over the place. Uh, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all, because people don't want to hear that. And, you know, there's so many things that you don't want to hear that, that, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, tough. Yeah, that's just, just the way it is. But uh, this is one of those things where you can really get behind. It's, it's universal. It's universal. I think that, um, and we'll get there eventually, I think bio-individuality encompasses much more than nutrition, but I think we should start maybe just focusing on that aspect of it. Um, if somebody says that there's no one right diet, do you think that's an argument against for, against, um, like food guides and, um, you know, because the, the U.S. has spent a lot of um, marketing efforts in coming up with various guides over the years, the food pyramid and my plate, and I don't even know what the rest of them were called. But yep. the they five, are, there the are... The five food groups were the early ones, or the five food lobbies. Right. More accurately could be described as, yeah. Right. And I don't know, I, I don't know if there's any uh, research that, talks about the extent to which those have actually been followed. We know that in um, federally funded and state funded school systems that they, they're funded based on those uh, recommendations. And so right. um, whether we like it or not, the, you know, your kid's school lunch program is full of low fat milk because there's the fear of fat yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's what's, what's, funding and you know that they have to have whole they have to have 
grains on their plate because that's recommended still um, by the powers that be. And you know actually that nowadays it has to be, or I guess I should say this was a couple of years ago, I was actually involved in the um, district wellness committee for a year or two and what I learned was they had to have at least, the grains had to be at least um, 51% whole grains. So more than half of the grains offered had to be whole grains at the time, which was the... (laughs) I know, they're splitting hairs. But the thing is, but the fact of the matter is, flours, breads, pastas, those things are a hell of a lot cheaper. And when they're working with a a uh, very restricted budget um damn straight they're gonna use 49 percent of their budget on those things because yeah. whole grains are going to cost a lot more and um, they have to abide by those rules i guess we're digressing a little bit but is bio individuality an argument against that that thing that our government sort of recommends and proposes i think it's a it's not an argument for or against. It's just a different point of view, I think. Um, because in a way, I, I think to a certain point, it, it depends on how far you want to take each notion. So to a certain point, I think that you can argue for one universal human diet if you don't get too specific. And, and then just clearly, uh, we see anecdotally every day in our lives that there is a case for individuality. You know, people do not react to the same diets. And, you know, you, you can have, you know, brothers and sisters, anyone who, who's grown up in a family with more than just themselves can, can see how, you know, a, a brother or a sister can get away with or not get away with certain foods, and you know, certain amounts and certain junk foods and things like that. So. Right. Right. I mean, th- that that you see very evidently. Right. And on the, I mean, it's, so there are plenty of kids who don't do well with that school lunch that has to have a certain amount of grains. Think, plenty I of kids. I'd, ar- I'd argue none of them do well. But <laughs> none of them do well. A lot of them like it. Worse than others. Um, I, I guess that's the other balance you have to, you have to offer. If you're going to spend money on food for school, you have to offer food that the kids are going to eat. So there's that um, other end of the spectrum there. But um, I hear what you're saying. Like in my family, my daughter has allergies, oral allergies, and she won't eat raw apples, carrots, celery uh, because it makes her mouth itch. And she's... It's a it's a long story. It's cross reactive with birch pollen. She has seasonal allergies. She's just got her immune system's challenged in ways that Clayton's is not. And um, so her diet is as long as she's got those you know those feelings when she eats those foods. Her diet is individual to her um, and will always be different than Clayton's or my diet. So that's a kind of a small example of bio-individuality. Um, yeah, well, there's, there's variance within the human genome, right? So when, when you look at all the, you know, the 50 to 60 billion cells, just, just talking about the human cells, 
there's uh, there's a genetic there's a certain amount of genetic diversity, right? And it's not as much as you would actually think. There's actually a tribe, a pygmy tribe in Africa that has um, more genetic diversity within that tribe than the entire rest of the human population on, on the planet. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy right there. So, right there, it's just proof of bio-individuality. And, you know, only a small group of, of very ambitious humans that made it out about 60,000 years ago. Well, I mean, this is, the, this is the theory of Africa about 60,000 years ago. Eventually colonized the rest of the, the rest of the planet. So there's a certain amount of, you know, congruency within that genetic spectrum. And we, we thought that there was going to be just a crazy amount when, you know, genetics really started kicking in um, in the 40s, somewhere around there. That, you know, the concept started getting out. And then I remember in school there was, a, you know, it was like an auditorium thing. There was like raising awareness for the Human Genome Project. It was like, this is going to be fantastic. After that, like, you know, we're not even going to have to have anybody even go into biology anymore. Everything's going to be, we're going to be able to do everything right to, the, right to the genes. You know, once we map this out, it's it. Like, like disease is done. You know, we, 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 you know, old age is done. You know, we, we've got it. And everyone was excited. Okay, it's going to take a couple of years, but once we get it, it's going to be fantastic. And then here we are 20 years later, and I'm thinking, whatever happened to that? Well, <laughs> they finished it. They finished it. It took them a while because of the technology back then. I mean, they can do it in a matter of weeks now, but they finished it. And it turns out there's only like 20,000 or so genes broken up in our 23 chromosomes. And it's just, it, it was ridiculously simplistic compared to what they were expecting. Right. Because you know, compared to other, you know, species like wheat now has, I think, I think wheat has more genetics than yeah, wheat. Yeah, various genes foods than definitely have more yeah. genetics than we do. That's kind it's, of it's just, humbling. It, so, yeah, so it blew their mind. And, and of course, you didn't hear anything about it because no one really had an answer or an explanation. And it turns out there's a whole other realm uh, called epigenetics that you have to start getting into before you can even begin to understand why we might have even went wrong. So now we're working on that. And when that happens, then, you know, maybe we'll, we'll start to hear more about it. But that just speaks to how, how close we are to, to, to all the other, well, all the other primates, really. I think we share uh, upwards uh, of 99% of our genetic code. Yeah, I think it's it, a 99.9. It, yeah, it's a lot. Like, it's a whole lot with, with the chimpanzee. So what does so, that say about our bio-individuality? Well, it says, it's, it says both spectrums, that it is both, we are both at the same time, which is a really hard concept to understand. We're both at the same time similar and different. That... that Point oh one percent makes us yeah. that small fraction. If yeah. you're using genes as the defining characteristics, which is another question, is that really what makes us different? No. Um, 
Well, I mean, yes, it does, but it, that's it. There's well, a it makes us genetically marginally different, but <laughs> but that fraction of a percent of change in the genetics between us and a chimpanzee um, has made huge differences in basically which species has um, you know taken over the world, right? Yeah. Um, and somewhere in there, in that. 0.01%, um, it, it makes our uh, diets different from the chimpanzee. I mean, mm-hmm. our guts are completely different, and our um, environments are completely different. Um, so I guess that begs the whole question of, is the, is the genetic differences the driving factor, or are there other differences that make us bio-individual? I would say other differences. Other differences, yes. <laughs> the, the, the lion's share, anyway. Lion's share, yeah. Um, so, to, to speak to the, the 99% that we are all the same, right. that's where we draw our conclusions for the one human diet. And the bio-individuality fills in the rest of that, you know, 0.01%. Right. So the, so the one human diet, what is that? What is that? How would you define if you were going to be... So in paleontology, they use these phrases called... This phrase called... Uh, you would either be a lumper or a splitter. <laughs> and maybe it's more than just paleontology, but that's my experience. Um, and functionally, what that means is... Um, are you going to lump all these organisms together that kind of look alike? Is that the variation within one species? Or are you going to take the end members of that variation and say, this is one species and this is another species, um, and they're completely different, and then there's all these transitional forms. And uh, so functionally, somebody who's a splitter is going to do a hell of a lot more work <laughs> taxonomically uh, because they've decided that they're looking at um, two different species, and um, you asked me the other day, "Am I a lumper or a splitter?" And that's a really, that's a really mind-bending question for me nowadays because, you know, when I think about the human, the range in um, variation in human species, just from what I understand today, particularly if you just look at the skeleton, a lot of disease and um, biomechanic wonkiness. Um, is shown in it's shown in your skeleton that is your history right and um, any two of our skeletons are very different and if I'm looking at skeletons in the rock record um, I might say uh, I might look at your skeleton Frank and look at my skeleton and be like these are two different species because because of the ratios of your bones versus the ratios of my bones and if I were if I were a splitter I would do that but um, I think now that I understand the range of variability in the human species, I might lump us all together and be like, yeah, all of these critters interacted differently with their environment and therefore created different structures in the end. Um, and I think the those two end members, that lumping and splitting, really defines this the argument for and against bio-individuality. 
It does. And we can see evidence of lumping and splitting and as different and as the same in like taxonomy. You know, we have kingdoms and then we have all the way down to species. So in a way that we are lumping all of life together as as life. Right. And then under that, you know, we split it into kingdoms. And then from there, we split each one of those further down until we finally get to species. Right. And then there's subspecies and then there's domesticated versions and feral versions of, of each of those also. Right. Right. And right. that, I think, we can draw from that and make dietary recommendations that way or lifestyle recommendations or... Or just look at that as a lens. I think that's right. I think that from a lumping perspective, all of the range of the human species, if you think about what is in common with that, with the diet of all humans on Earth, you can, yeah. you can, you can kind of easily define a human diet yeah. as being food from the Earth, minimally processed or processed by hand yeah or fire um, or fire simple tools simple tools no chemicals um yep. outside of natural things like water and <laughs> whatever's in yeah. that water right right water or <laughs> salt or yeah right um, maybe some maybe maybe fermenting a little bit of that right but, so different yeah what we would call preservation techniques or maybe even maybe these were just accidental discoveries um first right um so there's a there's a range of food and that's another thing food it's called food that <laughs> <laughs> or that's what we call it today um that humans eat so from that lumping perspective yes there's a there is um a single human diet. Um, and of course, I, I think when we say a single human diet, I, I think it's clear that we're, we're trying to refer to something that gives us the, the pinnacle of health and, and thriving. You know, we're not referring to, because clearly there's a lot that humans eat, but I don't think it's, well, I mean, I guess people can try, but we're not talking about arguing for Twinkies. Clearly, that's not part like, of the yes, human diet. Yes, there are Twinkies and yes, humans eat them. <laughs> but that doesn't that doesn't mean that they're part of the human diet. Well, we're talking about the human diet. We're talking about something that is a proper human diet for maximum performance, longevity, health and you know, biological viability. Right. Well, and proper isn't maybe Proper is not the right word, e even. I think the word yeah. is that it was evolutionarily available. Like, Twinkies were not part of what we co-evolved with. There's arguments about grains. That's the one thing that uh, comes to mind, because in the, the, yeah. the paleosphere, um, and part of the rationale behind the whole paleo approach was that gr uh, grains are sort of associated with the agricultural... Uh, revolutions and whatnot and so we until we actually cultivated them they were not staples in the human diet and then there's a lot of evidence um, subsequently that sure I mean people uh, paleo people did 
collect and eat and somehow process grains in some way. And so they weren't at all the same sort of grains that we have today, and nor were they um, staple foods. Um, yeah, they were sort of emergency. The, the way it's understood is that there's sort of emergency, you know, yeah, there was there was some fiddling around with, and the data always gets pushed back, you know, uh, of legumes, grass, you know, and, and wheats, grains, grains and legumes, these types of things that, you know, every once in a while they get pushed back a little bit further into the, the archaeological record, but it, it's clear that they weren't used until a certain time in any pervasive way. Like, yeah, they kind of fiddled around with them, but it really wasn't the main part of that human diet. And I, I don't think a, a lot of times, I think perhaps even we get a little dogmatic about what's available. Uh, and I don't think, I think we need to use that as the lens. Uh, maybe if it wasn't available, we need to be more careful with our approach to it in the future, but I don't think that necessarily automatically disqualifies it. Right. No, because uh, like oils in, in way were were probably not pervasive in the Paleolithic. Avocado oils, for instance, coconut oil. But these things, I think, are probably okay to incorporate into our current modern human diet. Why do you think that? Because of all the evidence that we have now of what of of the benefit to it oh okay yeah I, i always question that too like coconut oil seems to be a huge uh like if somebody's going hardcore paleo the things they eat are they switch everything over to coconut oil they eat yeah bacon and avocados (laughs) we'll just pick on bacon and avocados again again um I live in Madison, Wisconsin. There's nearly a coconut tree around. <laughs> and so um, for me, my if I were to think, if I were to use the, the sort of ancestral lens of what was available to me in my location, I would be eating um, trout, rabbit, wild rice, um, Various birds, um, buffalo. I mean, maybe I don't know how. I don't know where they were relative to me at that time. But there's a and there's plenty of wild plants that I'm learning about. And so that's the other thing that we. I think a, a large part the whole ancestral health community has yet to really visit is what's available outside the grocery store and as cultivated foods in your backyard seasonally. So I think um, that that's a huge um, The scope of locavore, I think, is sort of – that that's a lens that's sort of in front of the lens of, of sort of paleo. You know, like you right. step back. Like, you know, you can – in, the, in the, the more broad sense, you know, that's why I include things like avocado oil and – and coconut oil yeah. because in the in the broadest like maybe maybe for some people that is they're they're just not going to be able to go to that specific you know they don't have the time or the inclination mm-hmm. you know a lot of times um maybe they don't have that education yet so i do, you know i don't think i think it's fine you know i'm not yeah. going to i'm not going to give someone a hard time 
uh, about eating coconut oil just because they don't live in Jamaica. Right. You know? Well, and that's, I mean, you're bringing up a good point, too, because... Well, the Philippines. Or, the, or, the ancestral health template is what you and I, uh, we kind of like it as right. a, as what the human diet should be, once was, is, could be defined as, basically. The one human diet, we, you and I are on board with defining that in an ancestral way, um, which I think feels like, to me and you, just not having the, the processed foods that have all of the um, vegetable oils uh, that are all very modern, like in the past 30, right. 30 to 100 years, right? They're not, there's, that was not pervasive. Um, th- there's no preservatives, there's no herbicides and pesticides, there's no, um, there's no granola bars, <laughs> you know, there, yeah, there, there's like, so. there's just things that were... There's no cricket s- bars either. Single food, well, there are crickets, exactly, there are crickets, right? <laughs> but there are no cricket, cricket flower ba- bars cricket made bars, peanut yeah. butter and jelly flavor, yeah. yeah. But so yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we have to make allowances for these things, right. I believe, because we are modern humans. So right. we we inform ourselves uh, from the past because, and mainly, and maybe we're, maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Maybe we should un- we should make um, the caveat and and bring up the noteworthy observation that in. I ask any anthropologist, any archaeologist about the difference, like when when they look at a a human skeleton, it's really easy for them to instantly tell whether, you know, once they establish if it was a homo sapien, whether it was pre-agriculture or post-agriculture. Because something happened when agriculture arose and became pervasive to the human. Uh, They got shorter. Their brain shrunk. Their skeletons were weaker. were degraded and weaker and less dense. Less, less robust, yes. yeah. Less robust. And th- we see a lot of evidence, or we don't see any evidence of, of the, the myriad of diseases that we associate with, with modernity these days. Like, and we see this in hunter-gatherer cultures, too, uh, where people have done expeditions and there's, there's virtually no heart disease no cancer, sometimes not even cavities. Weston A. Price traveled the world to these native cultures and these things don't exist where people don't, aren't polluted by technology in a way to these degrees that we are here. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, but there are, clearly there are aspects of it that are bad because look at what it's doing to us. You know, it's, it's taking us and stunting evolution forward and de-evolving us in, in certain ways, physically, definitely one of them. Right. So um, I guess we're not saying, when we say there's, when I say, I'll speak for myself, <laughs> when I say there's no, uh, there is one human diet and that is through an ancestral lens, basically chopping off the last hundred years of, of Western diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a simple, that's kind of an easy way to start for me to think about it. But I'm not saying that um, everyone would thrive on that same, on a same menu, for example, from that diet. Um, And I'm saying that, you know, there are cultures around the world that eat 
a significant number of their meals or, or, you know, their calories, caloric intake from honey during the year. Right. Um, there are cultures Tribes in Africa. Yeah. There are, as far as I know, there are no cultures, traditional cultures that live entirely without animal products. None. That thrive anyway in that way. Um, there are, which is not to say um, somebody can't thrive without them for a time, but this is a, this is kind of another. Um, yeah, but that's all. That's a very small individual <laughs> scope of years, not not an actual peoples. Like there's no, right. there's no. I don't know of any any situation where there's three generations of completely 100% vegan. No. Um, I, I don't think. Well, it's not conducive to childbirth, and I mean, it doesn't it doesn't yeah. give a woman the nutrients they need to. Have right. a healthy pregnancy. Um, for I mean, it maybe if it does for one generation, that the whole, I mean, Pottinger's cats. You got to read that. <laughs> yeah, cats. because that's the. This is talking about the the multi generational yes. influence of. Yeah. Of diet and you know by extraction lifestyle, I guess. Um, in a yeah, in in a way the the dietary recommendations of the world and and. More specifically, the U.S., which are dictated by corporations and not science, we're basically Pottinger's humans. We are a living experiment of what happens when you do to the human race what Pottinger did to a few generations of cats. Right. We're living out of context with our our natural diet and see it. Do you do you um, have that on the top of your head to describe that uh, research? Uh, I can I can probably throw something out from memory. So basically, uh, Pottinger took a he, he did a, an experiment and he did it on cats. I think someone recreated this maybe with um with foxes too, perhaps. Oh, uh, oh, but that. so and maybe even dogs. But the one I know about is Pottinger's cats. So he took a, a whole bunch of cats and he split them up into different different controls and. He and, and in varying degrees, he fed them. You know, to make a long story short, uh, varying degrees of from uh, a, a biologically appropriate diet to a very uh, processed diet. So the cats that he fed the crappy food to, like uh, I think it was like condensed milk, like powdered yeah, milk, yeah, sweet and condensed. I think yeah. sweet and condensed. So milk. one was completely like raw meat food diet appropriate to to a cat. Uh, you know, they were allowed to breastfeed the whole thing, you know, like all mammals do. And like, and then there were maybe two versions in the middle where they got some milk and, you know, but then some processed food. And at the other end of the spectrum was just completely processed food, like powdered milk and, and like dry wheat product, cat food type stuff. It was just horrible. And it, it was pretty clear what happened. It was it was a very distinct line where the 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 cats that were fed the biologically appropriate diet thrived, and the cats that didn't got you know were sick. And it got to the point where eventually, within just like one generation, it, it took it took the middle group longer, but it took the the, the group that wasn't eating the bio, you know at the far end of the the highly processed food. They 
they they couldn't reproduce. They right, wouldn't, right. and eventually, like their their children wouldn't even have sex anymore. Like they wouldn't mate at all. They were, you know, they were they were deformed. They were losing hair uh, rather quickly. And then the middle group it took longer, but the epigenetic effects of it stayed too because he took a group and that was on the the processed food diet and tried to bring them back and it took several generations like three generations of eating a biologically appropriate diet for them to come completely back to you know within the range of healthy thriving cats but but they but the bottom line is that it was over time it was possible to gain health again yes when provided with the information that their bodies were seeking. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. you let when you let a cat be a cat, turns out they thrive. And, and what's I think what's interesting about that study and I have a book about it. I think it's just called Pottinger's Cats. I think so. Um and it's even in I think it's in black and white. Even to the layperson. Um if you and they show some pretty kind of gruesome uh dissections in the book. Um, I mean, I don't think they're gruesome, but some people might think they're gruesome. So they show, like, the... Don't show it to your cat. Don't show it to your cat. (laughs) They will not enjoy that. (laughs) Shield the cat. So they take... uh, um, After the, you know, generation passes, they take this cat that was fed the biologically appropriate diet, and they basically fillet it open. Mm Mm-hmm. And to the lay person's eye, you can tell those organs are healthy, even in black and white. Like the images, the organs look, well, distinct. They look uh, robust. Um, Crisp and vibrant. They look, yeah. Um, And then they do the same thing for the processed food diet cats. And it's just, it's really clearly their organs suffered there's they're just not they're they're uh, deflated almost and kind of run together there's other sorts of fat around it and it's not they're they're just they just doesn't look what you would imagine they're basically a standard american and I so, mean, that's, that's the line you can clearly make. That's, and, that's where we are now. And he used cats because they reproduce relatively quickly and, right. um, and they are yep. large Generation enough. They're year, large right. enough to see, you know, behavioral issues. And we kind of know what a cat's, what a, you know, a, a feline eats, like biologically appropriate. We know this for a lot of animals. <laughs> we know... We yeah. we studied animals in the wild, and we know what their diets are. Um, and some of us study humans in the wild, and are making observations about their diets. Um, and then this is where you have to. This is where the bio individual bio individuality <laughs> comes into play, because your your humans in the wild in Africa, their diet isn't going to extrapolate to you know the humans here in Wisconsin. Right. Um, not not at the specific level. Not at the specific not, level. But, um, but anyway, of... like your observation that, that this is what's going on today in the U.S. is that we're a bunch of Pottinger's cats is yeah. very, it's spot on because we are offered, we are offered this processed food diet in any grocery store, in any grocery store. And... Um, Every. 
and it's very without having this um, with this blind trust that the the food the I won't I'm I was gonna say a specific specific brand I don't know if I should do that but whatever any kind of TV dinner in a box yeah. right well, we've, it, we've already thrown Twinkies under the bus we might <laughs> that's as well. true that's true well whatever I don't I don't know all of them anymore but um, but if you can stack your food in your cart into nice neat piles of boxes it's time to think about. A reboot. A reboot because you're opting into this uh, unintentional experiment. Yeah, yeah. It's and we're fed a lot of a lot of false information has been just blindly accepted as fact, and like this whole idea that you just need a certain amount of calories. You just need two thousand calories. That's what you need, and that's it. You know, you can get it from these TV dinners, you can get it from these chicken nugget product type things, uh, you know, or, and, and that's fine, you know, because it's all been enriched and, and it's really just all about the calories and that is not at all the truth of the matter. Right, it's the, it's the information that comes in the food that is what your your body is expecting and uses to create the chemistry of life. It's the the calories, the the idea behind calories is a, it's a measure of energy. And and you know, in some in well, some metrics you do need fuel for energy. Um but calories is kind of a calories is like calling all foods carbs or all foods fats. I mean, it kind of, that's the lumping thing about, it's about just a, it's a unit of measurement. That's all it is. When, when you, when you sit down with an architect and ask, you know, him to build you a house, he doesn't say, okay, how many inches do you want it? You give him a number and that's it. He walks away. No, it's, it, there's a lot more involved. Right. It's, it's just a unit of measurement. That's all it is. It's, it's how, how many, how many units like how a calorie is just how what it takes to raise like one gram of water one degree yes yeah, literally like that. that's what it means right that's it right. that's all it's like so saying it's- a pound is a pound well i mean you know you know arnold schwarzenegger you know weighs a certain amount and you know i don't even know there's just pick some unhealthy person that's that's really obese weighs that same amount yeah. Right. But they are certainly not the same human. Well, and also the whole calorie recommendation arises from the fact that, um, one, we have access to anything we want to eat these days mm-hmm. without working for it. Somebody else is going to work for it, and then we just need to go and pick it up or have it delivered to our house. So mm-hmm. having unlimited caloric intake um is not not what nature intended unlimited and unchecked and uh so those so i mean they're naturally and functionally doesn't need to be a caloric restriction um if you're eating foods that are satiating and you 
are able to hear your body say, I'm full. Yeah. Um, that naturally happens. And it naturally happens when your body gets the, the information it needs. If it's not getting the information it needs and you, you don't feel full and you're, you, right. know, you end up craving things and those cravings, um, they're telling because mm-hmm. they may in some ways be very real, like your body really cra- seriously needs a specific thing, um, but your mind is telling it um, maybe otherwise. Anyway, I guess we're kind of digressing on this, but well, well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm... craving someone you ha- you had a, a little saying that you just uh, that you brought up to me just recently about cravings. Do you remember that? Um, was it about desires? Something like that. Yeah, I guess you don't have it right on the tip of your tongue. That's all right. I don't. I sent it to you on Facebook, um, was but it? it was it was about. Um, it was about your body intelligence um, and how our bodies are, they are naturally intelligent um, and that you should listen to the desires of your body uh, because um, that's how it's communicating with you. If you find it, let me know. But um, I guess long story short from kind of recapping what we've said so far is that um, bio-individuality means with respect to food that there are many right ways to create a healthy person, many right dietary approaches to create a healthy person. Um, but there are, and outside of that, like, um, so bio-individuality is, um, um, kind of created by your family history, your genetics, your epigenetics, your gender, your your perceived stressors, mm-hmm. um, your age. Of course, at we have different nutrient needs at different points in our life. I mean, we're um, we have needs for breast milk when we're infants. We have needs for other things as we age. Um, your current state of health. I guess if anyone is unhealthy. Um, that kind, that's kind of a body signal that you aren't getting, your body needs some information or it needs to be somehow, uh, put in, in an environment for healing that it is, it is not currently finding, um, your preferences, any, obviously your preferences, no matter where you live and what you have access to, if you don't like a specific food, you're not going to eat it routinely. And, and if you like the hell out of a specific food, <laughs> you're going to eat it a hell of a lot more. Enter bacon and avocados. Right. <laughs> Chocolate. <laughs> Seasons, uh, which um, has a lot to do with what's available. Seasons and geography uh, for local foods. Like, like you brought up the word locavore before. And so this whole big um, lumping together of a natural human diet is, you know, there is one natural human diet and there are so many pathways within it. And one of them is this kind of locavore thing where you aim to eat within, uh, I think it's like a hundred mile radius or something like that. That's one way to create your own bio-individuality. 
your bacteria, whoever you have living inside of you, um, for whatever, we don't even know what the hell they do, but, um, <laughs> but they may be signaling your, you know, they may be doing signaling cravings, they may be, they help you to do various things digestively and assimilate different nutrients, and if you have different bacteria than somebody else, which is almost always the case, then that creates yeah. bio-individuality. I would Whether, say that is always the case. It is always the case. And and your your habits around movement and activity, I mean, if you're a very active person, uh, you um, have different nutrient requirements than somebody who's not. Um, and then sleep and, I mean, there, it just goes on and on. All the things that create bio-individuality is basically this unique snowflake <laughs> that is you right you are you are the only person living your particular life with your particular thoughts and energy and and decisions and what's available to you and all of that um, factors into what's going to work for you and that 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 will change not don't look at it like okay you know all i need to do is figure out what the what my specific code is and that's it i can just eat like that and i've got it all down well that will change from time to time too i mean your nutrient requirements your your food information requirements to get you to a point of of thriving robust beautiful health is going to be different from day to day time to time uh depending on how much sleep you got for instance you know you're pulling an all-nighter you're not going to be able to maybe get away with things that you could normally get away with from a day-to-day basis. You know, maybe, uh, maybe for certain people, you know, a, a little bit of a higher carb, maybe even a slight gluten exposure isn't going to bother them if it only happens once, once a month or whatever. Um, it, it certainly isn't going to help them, but you know, they can they can roll with it mm-hmm. in a way, but. Uh, that's in the context of that that same person's you know if they're a healthy person you know if they're at their they're at that thriving threshold you know but you take that same person and you sleep deprive them for a couple of days and you stress them and you give them a cold and then everything changes right it's chicken, that, soup, t- chicken yeah, soup time yeah that, that, <laughs> you know that that same wedding cake that they want to try is going to really just screw with them it's mm-hmm. gonna drop them into a whole nother level you know they might actually get that cold where normally you know if they weren't sleep deprived they were getting you know their their full sleep you know they weren't stressed you know they're getting their sun stuff like that it, it would yeah you can what? get away with certain things at certain times and yeah so i would i guess the question is that people might be um asking is how it's, everyone's so bio-individual, and maybe it's overwhelming to think that there are so many right ways. What would be... Frank, what's your advice? <laughs> what is your advice for um, for people to, f- to unlock their bio-individuality, to figure out what's right for them? Uh, I think you need to get a baseline. Um... First, usually one of the first things I have to, it depends on the client, but I would be, it, it, gluten and or sugar are really the big things that I see a lot of people that are problematic. Like, first things just it, to 
put yourself into this this broad umbrella of ancestral health or whatever you want to call it, paleo, primal, you know, the Weston A. Price, whole foodist, real food, you know, get yourself under that umbrella first and stay there for a little bit. You know, don't, don't, don't cheat with this other stuff. Just, just to get a good base, you know, get under there, you know, and, and, and live that lifestyle for, for a few months. And you'll, I think if most people just follow a simple, paleo diet, uh, a simple primal diet, a simple ancestral health diet, like 90% of the people, like 90% of their ails are probably going to be cured. Like that one thing just is going to, it's going to alleviate so much. And then from there, from there you experiment, you know, um, some people need higher fat, some people need a higher carb, some people need lower carbs, some people need a certain amount of protein, some people need a lot less protein, you know, some people can deal with FODMAPs, some people can't, some people find it hard to eat local and don't find much benefit from that, you know, some, it's, that's where, you know, then eggs and dairy, these kinds of things, you know, you owe it to yourself to sort of, you know, eliminate them reintroduce and see what happens you know one thing that comes to the top of mind right now in terms of this approach is ancestral approach some people call you know you could talk about whole foods and you can talk about this other the other thing that kind of is bantered around is clean eating yeah but clean eating is actually it's close but no cigar when it comes to um i think ancestral health uh because i think i think the thing that for healing and getting your baseline like you're talking about um it is eliminating refined flowers and that kind of stuff and i think and maybe i'm wrong because i haven't spent a whole lot of time in the clean eating uh you know googling that but um my but, thought is there's yeah, but, that's, but that people. includes pastas and breads and that kind of stuff i think and to some people not to others it's right. like you ask a hundred people what clean eating means you're gonna get a hundred different answers right for them like sometimes clean eating means whole wheat pasta right. <laughs> whole wheat bread right which is not what we mean when we say it right because what we're suggesting is that wheat in any form might be part of the problem more people are probably allergic to that in some or sensitive to it in some way in the volume that they're getting. And that's something that you can figure out if you remove it for a while and see what it does. And if you add it back and you see what it does, um, that's, that's a way to figure out your, but also tuning into how you feel, I think is a, is a key part. And some people um, have had a specific diet for a very long time. And by diet, I'm not saying like they are imposing any restrictions on themselves necessarily. But if you think about it, you have go-to foods and you are accidentally restricting yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes in very big ways. I mean, there are... even we're even restricted if we only shop the grocery store because they're picking from amongst the cultivated vegetables you yeah. know from which they pick and so you aren't offered anything outside of that so you're um, only getting the best sellers because they're not going to hold anything that doesn't sell not stock anything that yeah that won't sell right so. and so my something i always like to help people see is that 
um, they are probably naturally restricting and that there's this whole abundance approach to their diet that um, they could adopt um, and if, if, if it's interesting to them. I know some people don't care to, it's overwhelming to experiment and to explore, try new foods, that kind of stuff. But other people, once they realize, oh yeah, I'm eating the same eight vegetables all the time. Um, and from, in my brain, I'm thinking, well, if I have a different one, I'm getting new information yeah. and that might be something that my body might recognize. So anyway, abundant, an abundance approach to your current diet was actually another way to monkey around with this bio individuality. Um, yes. the, the other, the, the last thing I think is that. Um, it bio-individuality is more than, it, you know, extends beyond nutrition. And we've been talking about f- food primarily, but in general, it's it, in a, a lumping approach. <laughs> it's your preferences and yeah. your kind of your mindset and your openness and your sort of the extent to which you're aware of your control and your choices. Right. And your tolerance levels too. It's, and it's also the effect of, like, like there's very few people that have, that are born into and have followed this their whole life, this ancestral health right now anyway. You know, I mean, there's, there's a few, you know, children that have been born into these families, but, um, you know, so far, you know, they're just children. So like, like me, for instance, you, for instance, you know, we, we, grew up in this this standard american diet you know paradigm you know where it, it, you know it was the the boxed foods and the canned foods and the the tasty cakes and all these other crappy stuff and lots of pasta um and it's going to be different so you have to take that into account you can't say like Maybe, you know, people want so much to, to, to bring certain things in and they just might be that metabolically damaged where, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a problem. You have, to, you have to be willing to admit that or at least accept or entertain the idea that, that you've been metabolically damaged, perhaps, you know, and... So from this point forward, like I can't, you know, once a week, you know, I want to have pizza and beer, you know. Well, you know, maybe if I grew up in a, in a, you know, completely local food environment, you know, with with no exposure to toxic chemicals and, you know, not the stress that we have now and exposure to all these processed foods maybe maybe i could tolerate that you know it certainly wouldn't thrive on you know pizza and beer a week you know that's not going to help you but yeah. you it's not going to hurt you to a point where there's a significant noticeable difference permanently or right. anything you know but but it, i i know i just can't do that that, that uh, to do that once a week it's just it's not going to happen I, i'll be in steady decline there's there's no doubt that's that's a you know that's a once or twice a year kind of thing not a once or 
a once a week kind of thing. There, there's a certain amount that you, eat, you know, it's like, okay, in the human diet, there, you know, there's a certain tolerance for, uh, you know, a large amount of carbohydrates. Well, if your past has gotten to the point where you're now a type 2 diabetic, well, that's going to be different for you. You know, you're not going to be able to eat the carb load that other humans are going to be able to eat. That's, that's, that's bio-individuality also. Well, there's a certain, uh, if, if your past and your exposure and your lifestyle and your nutritional choices and your genetics have led you to the point where you now have, you know, Hashimoto's disease or lupus or MS, um, maybe you are going to have to be pretty strict ketogenic if you want to try and gain your health back or to right. thrive, to get to that point where other people don't have to be. You know, they can just be low or semi-low carb or cyclic low carb, not even ketogenic. You know, some of these other people can get away with that. that that's, the, that's where the bio-individuality comes from. You know, Terry Walls can't eat like Ben Greenfield. You know, Ben Greenfield can get away with a shit ton more carbs. <laughs> and, uh, and that's just the way it is. Because of bio individuality, right? Yeah, and if and functionally, for somebody who um, doesn't want to figure out what all these different dietary types and approaches are, what is keto? What is low carb? What is um, blah blah blah? It's it's really about self experimentation and how you feel. And if you and interestingly enough, even if you th- if you feel fine and that's been your norm for a really long time, you feel like you have energy and things seem okay. Um, and then you make one change and all of a sudden it gets better (laughs) and you realize that, um, you know, the, the subtle bloat you've had for a really long time is gone and you didn't realize it could be that way or you never realized you had that to begin with. Um, those are eye opening um, sort of self learnings and um, um, you know for for me for example like I have this love hate relationship with dairy um, I have a tolerance for a certain amount and then above that like I I, I honestly if I have a like a glass of milk mm-hmm. I get I almost instantaneously get a like a dull headache mm-hmm. um, but I can eat cheese okay. So I don't know what it is. They're different foods, obviously. Um, um, and that's something that I know happens. Um, and, and rarely does it stop me from having that glass of milk. <laughs> <laughs> but I experiment all the time. <laughs> and I know, I guess, you know, I, I yeah. could probably feel better more often if I, you know, crowd that milk out with a glass of something else. So right. anyway. Um, yeah, clearly that and milk, milk is a very, very good example of bio individuality. Um, like all, all humans, as as far as I know, from research that I've done, all humans have um, the enzyme that breaks down um, chitin, 
or the chitinous shell of insects, right? Uh, so I don't know what the enzyme would be called, maybe like chit- chitinase or something like that. And like we, we've retained that right, right to this very day. So, but only a very small amount, like maybe like under 10%, have lactase persistence. So lactase is the enzyme that breaks down lactose, which is found in dairy products like milk. So there's only a small amount of the population that has that. Like we're all born, or, or hopefully we're all born, or all the typically a, a normal mammal is born with the ability to create lactase, the enzyme that breaks down lactose in milk because we are mammals and we depend on milk in the first stage of our life. And so sometime during human evolution, we've, we've evolved to have lactase, not to have, to, to, for that lactase enzyme to stop being produced. So sometime, I don't know, in, in early, early adolescence, uh, they theorize perhaps because of like sibling rivalry, sibling, sibling rivalry, you know, so that the, the, the newborn baby isn't in competition with milk from, you know, an older brother or sister, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense. But, and we have evolved uh, with the dawn of agriculture. And it was a simple evolution because all it was was the the genes that switched that off just didn't switch that off. So they have what, what they call lactase persistence into adulthood. And there's a very small uh, group of humans that actually have that. Uh, I, I can't remember. It depends on who you talk to. The, the percentages are all over the place. It's everywhere from you know 20% to 10% to 6% of humans that actually have that. So that's a good example of biodiversity and bioindividuality between humans. You yeah. Know? And from oh. an ancestral perspective, milk is another kind of a good thing to talk about because, um, okay, maybe not ancestral perspective, but in terms of food processing, um, typically before dairies popped up, um, we would have raw milk. And raw milk is a completely different food from the milk that's provided to you in the grocery store because that milk has been, first of all, it's the milk from how many, who knows how many cows put together and then separated out into different fat contents because we often sell milk without fat um, or milk with twice as much fat. And then it's pasteurized to, for its for food safety reasons supposedly and that pasteurization process changes the nutrients it degrades the vitamins natural vitamins in yep. the milk and then for that reason they enrich it with vitamin d so it goes, so we add back in vitamins that yeah um also uh, i don't know how biosimilar though that vitamin d is to the original vitamin D in the milk and what other nutrients that they've nuked out of the milk that they don't put back into it so that there's um, so those vitamins have those cofactors naturally with it so maybe there aren't those cofactors naturally in the milk anymore and um, uh, what I'm what I'm saying right now is not there's not as far as I could tell there's not a whole hell of a lot of science that backs up um, the human 
difference, like the difference in consumption between raw milk and um, like, for example, the closest thing to it at the store today would be they would sell non-homogenized whole milk, organic whole milk. Um, right. but it's but it's pasteurized or or it's some way it's um, still, it's been, still boiled yeah it's still been um, changed um, there but th- this, is, a, this is anecdotal yeah this yeah. is an anecdotal thing where people are experimenting with their bio individuality and so some people who don't feel that they can tolerate milk as you'd buy it in the grocery store actually do okay on raw milk for whatever reason and it's a different it really is a different food um and it so um, yeah. you know there's, there's a lot there's also a certain amount of lactase in the milk itself that that will help aid in that digestion but yeah right so it comes naturally with the tools required to mm-hmm. assimilate and use in your body right. um so i keep watching that science to see if there's anything yeah. that's like coming out but i mean really like the the lots of people need science to tell them something is a f- fact or not <laughs> yeah a lot um, of people don't yeah they got to wait for the science to catch up to but the but the bottom line is you are you are in control of whether or not you test that yourself yeah so so but and that and that's worth it i think it's it's certainly worth experimenting with and it's certainly worth uh, trying to figure out where your threshold is with dairy products, um, it it you would really be doing yourself a favor because you're not really you're not missing anything in milk that you can't get from uh, hundreds of other different sources. Um, there's the milk industry has you believing an awful lot that it's you just have to have milk. It's just for one calcium. Nessi- oh yeah, for calcium and. I don't even know what else, yeah. which it's, it's simply not true. You, you can get all the calcium you need and then some from just plain old vegetables right off the bat, just that. So it's, it's, it's definitely worth experimenting. It is, there's, yeah. it's, there's no reason that for you not to drink milk for a month or two. Mm-hmm. There's no reason. There's nothing you're going to miss from milk and, and including the calcium. Uh, you don't have to listen to what uh, industry has um, has out there masquerading as science, um, because it's really just it's it's really just industry propaganda masquerading as science, telling you that you have to have milk because you need that calcium for your bones. You do need calcium for your bones, yes, but it's overstated, and the only source is not milk. So it's well worth it if you take. Take a month or two and just just eliminate dairy from your diet to see how you do, yeah. uh, and then bring it back in. And you know maybe you do better without it. And maybe when you introduce it, reintroduce it. It's really not that bad, and it's something that you can tolerate. I think that there's the, uh, this is leading me to another thought that I'll just say because why not? Okay. Um, and that's um, when you're saying remove something for a month or two to see how you feel. Also bio-individual because, um, for example, and I know this from, from studying wheat for a long time, if you, some people can feel a difference if they remove wheat after a week. Some people would need to remove wheat for six months 
um, to actually feel a difference because there because there's that much more healing in the body that has to take place before it's um, right. before it's felt basically, and so a lot I think a lot of people. Um, it's frustrating because if you eliminate it for a couple of months and everyone's like, well, um, everybody says wheat is the problem and it's, look, it's not doing anything for me, but it just hasn't had the, your body hasn't had the opportunity to figure out what to do without it yet. It's just taking that much longer. And, and I'll even add that uh, the other thing that I really think actually takes even longer to notice um, at least outwardly notice is the removal of um, vegetable oils from your diet. Um, that's just something that, I mean, all of your cells in your body are made up of these fats. And um, I've noted, I've been, I've severely reduced my exposure to vegetable oils for the past four years or so. And I'm, and in the past year or two, I finally noticed, um, changes in my skin and I don't know I mean I I guess it's really bad science because (laughs) I don't know for sure if it is finally the vegetable oils but I do know that different um, resources in your body take different amounts of time to um, to basically turn over and for you like the the trillions of cells in your body um, it could take some time for them to kind of reorganize and and turn into uh you know yeah that's a good point and then there's there's the there's the fact that you may not know that you're like if you're trying to eliminate gluten it's hidden everywhere and if you are having a problem with gluten like you've had a a leaky gut problem then you're and you have the antibodies for gluten um or any one of the the different gluten proteins you're going to you're going to be overreacting to that for uh some people can overreact for like 6 months so you it and if you accidentally get if you're really sensitive to it like if you're at a, a very sensitive celiac level you know you can get glutened just by going to uh, a restaurant getting a salad with croutons in it and picking out the salad or picking out the croutons from the salad like that could be more than enough to really give you a reaction and you may not know that you've had that reaction and you may say, oh, well, you know, I, I've taken gluten out and it, that can't be it. Right. When you, you, you have, but you've still been exposed. Yeah. yeah. I know my, my niece stuff. has celiac disease and, and all of the, like even all of the condiments in her refrigerator, she's got, there's two of them. And because for example, I think the mayo, right? People would dip, a, a knife in the mayo and then white right. mayo on their bread. Um, she can't even have like the whiff of anything. Um, and so she's got her own mayo that has never been <laughs> sullied <laughs> with wheat <laughs> pretty much. Right. <laughs> anyway, so very sensitive. Yeah, I can't stand that. You know, the people, oh, it, it, oh, I tell you, breadcrumbs, toast breadcrumbs in my Kerrygold. Oh, oh, you know. <laughs> Want to put me into a rage? Do you remember those? Uh, do you remember those? Um, ah, now I'm blanking on what it was called. <laughs> the that um, there was a dictionary. It was made up words, 
And I remember the there was a word made up for toast for breadcrumbs in your butter, and it was called subatomic toasticles. <laughs> <laughs> Can't stand. What was that called? Subatomic toasticles. Subatomic toasticles. Oh my gosh. I can't, uh, it was like, uh, I was talking to somebody about this dictionary the other day, and they came right up with it, I think it was my sister, like, immediately came right up with it, I'll have to, I'll have to look that up, and you, like, uh, snaggles, yeah. or, oh, what the hell was it called? It's a word for the dried There's mustard a, around the, around the cap. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Do you know what I'm talking about? Does it sound I, familiar? I've heard of it, I, I yeah. don't, I wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. That's something I can find out pretty easily. So uh, here's that quote that you were mentioning before about, I think you said cravings, but the, so this this comes from Dr. Natasha Campbell's website, mm. actually the GAPS website. Respect your desire. Desire is your inner body intelligence talking to you, letting you know what it needs to keep you healthy, energetic, and happy. And I think that is the the gist really of bioindividuality bio-individuality is, um, I mean, you, you really kind of do need to know, you have to tune into yourself and, and pay attention to how you feel and your, your cravings and, um, and just take action on those things to, to, to find your path within, (laughs) to find your one of many right ways, um, within the, what we would consider to be the one human diet. Right. And you got to, with the caveat that, I mean, listening to your body, because when I first, you know, tried to, I, you know, to use a term that we couldn't define before, clean up my diet, mm-hmm. when I first decided to, to delve into this ancestral health realm, like my cravings, I, I couldn't listen to my body because it was it was shouting the wrong thing, you know. My body was telling me, you know, eat eat ice cream and <laughs> and um, you know put that that French vanilla creamer in your coffee and you know drink that Starbucks caramel macchiato. Right, those were your experiences, and you were reminiscing about those things and. That, that those were the only things that were going to satisfy your craving because that's mm-hmm. what you knew. Yeah. Um, so I guess that that's a an argument for recalibrate abundance too. Outside yeah, and that, of what you know that that changes when you when you when you recalibrate. I guess when you when you're when you get away from the what the because literally. Like literally, there are food scientists and chemists in a lab creating foods, these processed foods, to entice you to eat more, to push you towards addiction to them. Like, they, like literally, that's what they do. They design foods with chemicals and flavor compounds and certain ratios of fats and salts and sugar to to make you want to eat more make you want to buy more and yeah and is the bottom line right so buy more well yeah come back from you eat the more you buy right <laughs> that's it's horrible so you've got to 
you've, you've got to stop listening to that first. You know, you've got to step away from that and then you can hear it, you know? Yeah. You listen to your cravings, not, not the industry. Yep. So, Frank, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is do what you want. <laughs> I do what I want. I do what, what I, want. I want. Eat what I want. You know, it's uh, basically if you you need uh, oh, uh, my advice would be it it would behoove you to delve into this and try to educate yourself on the theory so that you can make the decision for yourself. Like a lot of times. People just like they're like yeah, just tell me what to do, you know. They're they're the people that they they want that magic pill. They want that just give me the diet book. Just just give me the list. How, how can you fix me? How can you fix yeah, me? Yeah, fix me. Yeah, fix me. Fix me. Here's take my money. Fix me. No, I, I I want to teach you how to fix yourself. Okay, you know you give a man a fish. You feed him for one meal. You know you teach him to fish. You feed him for a lifetime. You know, so you. You give a man a meal plan, you've, you know, you've fed him for that one week, you know, but you teach a man to make a, a meal plan and you've now infused him with health for life. Right. And that's, that's my approach to coaching. So that's my advice there. You know, you don't have to be dogmatic about it. You can, you can get into it simply. You can get into it, you know, slowly mm-hmm. or you can jump all in, but there's, it's it's not as hard as you think. No, no. And um there are so many right ways. <laughs> there are so many ways. Underneath the ancestral health umbrella, there are so many different ways you can do it. And it's it's freaking delicious, okay? It's it's scrumptious. There's so many times I just I have a meal, and I was like, "This is fantastic! It's it's better than any of that processed food I've ever tasted, and it's real." And uh, you know, I'll share that shit on Instagram, and I'll be like, "You still feel you still feel sorry for me that I don't eat wheat?" <laughs> Hell no! <laughs> oh, goat cheese and and local grown tomatoes and like a bison burger, a grass fed bison, and a slice of avocado on top, and. Maybe some bacon. It's oh my god! It's so good. It, it's oh total paleogasm right there. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, I mean, this is good food, man. This is, is good food. Eating healthy is freaking delicious. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, it certainly can be. So there's so many ways under that umbrella. You know, you don't you, even if you, you don't like red meat. There's so many. Oh my! It's the fish. Yeah. Oh, have you ever had a perfectly made salmon? It's 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 fantastic. Right. Sardines. I've I've learned to love sardines. Right. And I I think we have to hat, just hat tip once again to Joshua Rosenthal because heck yeah, his um, coining this phrase bio individuality and um, and over the course of the past um, few years, more and more actual research is coming out. Mm-hmm. suggesting that he's spot on that this the whole the i mean it and it's intuitively makes sense cuz globally we have different diets globally we have thriving people mm-hmm. um it's not it's it doesn't it's not a huge stretch to to understand the point of this and I, but i think it's important to recognize that 
um, we're not all cut out of the same cloth and that, um, yeah. and our nutrient needs are always different and our lifestyles are always different. And there's a number of ways we can stack all of this information up to uh, create good health for ourselves. All right, let's wrap this up. This is really long. <laughs> oh, well, I hope you enjoyed our meandering discussion about you and your bioindividuality. And I hope you gained something from this. And if you would like, I would appreciate it. And I know Meredith would appreciate it if you would uh, hop on down to iTunes and maybe give us a little review, maybe a rating, or join the conversation with us on Facebook or Twitter. I would appreciate it. Yeah, I, I would too. Yeah, show your love. I might even write a nice handwritten note. Yeah. I would not, and that would be <laughs> beneficial to you not to get a handwritten note. But, oh, yeah. Uh, it's totally cryptic. You'd have to totally uh, translate it. But, hey, might happen. Never know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, maybe we'll even read it on the air. Yeah. Oh, we should totally do that. You Let's know what? Do Let's do it right now. Yeah. Let's read a review on the air. Let's do it. Let's read the first one we got. We've got a review from Burnt Umber. We got nice five-star rating. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think it would be awesome. <laughs> We're some pretty cool humans. I just finished episode two, The Calf Path. Wow. I was, really, I was recently diagnosed with a chronic illness, and the myopic tendencies of the medical profession I've seen over the last decade are what caused my diagnosis to take so long. Too many doctors are stuck on the calf path unwilling to look outside their box. I look forward to the future insights from Frank and Meredith. Boom. Thank you, Burnt Umber, for your five-star review and your incredibly awesome review. Words, yep. Words. Awesome. Yay. Rating. Yeah, rating and review. I'm getting those mixed up. You know what I mean. Yep. I think it's time to cue the crickets. Cue the crickets with... <laughs> By the way, you should be eating <laughs> because <laughs> because if you're human, you very likely have the enzymes for which to break down those nutrient little buggers. So that's your homework. Go eat a cricket. I'm going to eat a cricket. All right. Go eat a cricket. Report back if that yeah. happens. <laughs>